When Box got started in 2006, the small engineering team had a lot to learn. Box was one of the earliest cloud storage companies with a product that allowed companies to securely upload files to remote storage. This was two years before Amazon Web Services introduced on-demand infrastructure as a service, so the Box team managed their own servers, which they learned how to do as they went along. In the early days, the backup strategy was not so sophisticated. The founders did not know how to properly set up hardware in a co-located data center. The front-end interface was not the most beautiful product. But the product was so useful that eventually it started to catch on. Box's distributed file system became the backbone of many enterprises. Employees began to use it to interact with and share data across organizations. The increase in usage raised the stakes for Box's small engineering team. If Box's service went down, it could cripple an enterprise's productivity, which meant that Box needed to hire experienced engineers to build resilient systems with higher availability. And to accommodate the growth in usage, Box needed to predict how much hardware to purchase and how much space in a data center to rent, a process known as capacity planning. As Box went from three engineers to 300, the different areas of the company went from being managed by individuals to teams to entire departments with VPs and C-level executives. Jeff Quasar is an SVP at Box and one of the earliest employees. He joins the show to describe how Box changed as the company scaled. We covered engineering, management, operations, and culture. In previous shows, we've explored the stories of companies like Slack, DigitalOcean, Giphy, Uber, Tinder, and Spotify. It's always fun to hear how a company works on the inside, from engineering the first product to enterprises with millions of users. To find all of our episodes about how companies are built, download the Software Engineering Daily app for iOS or Android. These apps have all 650 of our episodes in a searchable format. We have recommendations and categories and related links and discussions around the episodes. It's all free and also open source. If you're interested in getting involved in our open source community, we have lots of people working on the project. And we do our best to be friendly and inviting to new people coming in looking for their first open source project. You can find it at github.com slash softwareengineeringdaily. We'd love to see you there. We'd love to see you in our Slack. And let's get on with this episode. Jeff Quiser is a SVP of engineering at Box. Jeff, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks. Great to be here. It's great to have you. You were a very early employee at Box. You joined in 2006, which was just a year after it got started. Give me a framing of the early technology stack and the early problems that Box had to solve for. Yeah. So year was 2006. This was the year of the LAMP stack or some part of that section. So everything was Linux, Apache, MySQL, PHP. That's what was happening at the time. And so that's what we built on top of. We were you know, kind of early in that way. And uh, I would say, and we can talk more about this later, we were very early on in the scale journey of Box also. So that worked for a while. And you know, of course, I had to continue to, to uh, scale things up past that point. But the LAMP stack is what it was. And the first version was just a box that was sitting there and you were waiting for it to fill up and then you had another server <laughs> waiting or what exactly? That's not terribly far off. That's not terribly far off. So 
think uh, there, there was no AWS, also just as a kind of reference point. So two, imagine, that's two years away, right? Yeah, something like that, yes. So imagine the era of you go to something like a soft layer and, uh, and you're just provisioning bare metal machines. And, uh, and so that's where we started. And, and yeah, the, the scale numbers were not that big. So it was not terribly far off from add another file server. So soft layer, that was a way to provision machines remotely, right? Well, so yeah, they, they were, uh, we worked with a couple different hosting providers, but they're just an example of you're purely operating in a bare metal world. And so you can, you can use your own provisioning tools in general, but they're pretty much delivering you or that model is delivering you just a physical server, which is your server. Do you have to call them to set it up or can you just, is there some sense of infrastructure as a service at, in 2006? Yeah, the API was um, was basically a, a trouble ticket, so that's not a great API. So, but you can't. But okay, but it's not terrible, <laughs> right? Wasn't there something? There was something else called uh, like Slice Host or something around that time, right? Wasn't yes. there was like some semblance of infrastructure as a service? The first ideas yes, it was, of it. it was just just exactly. I think the seeds were were kind of planted around that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you do anything around virtualization around that time? Nope. In general, we've we've been relatively successful in just sort of loading up different workloads. And so it actually was a while until we got into a more virtualized environment, just because, you know, we, a web server can crank it 75% of CPU used and, and, um, and, you know, kind of get the same types of utilization you'd get with virtualization. Mm. So do you remember how many customers it took to get to a point where you needed to add additional servers, or you started to actually systematically think about scalability? Yeah, so at some point we were kind of clearly outgrowing the hosted model, and so we set up our own. We actually um, leased some colocation space that was here in the Bay Area, and uh, my another co-founder, so Sam Godes and I, we basically taught ourselves how to uh, data center, and got a, a Cisco sixty five hundred nine kind of big iron switch and a couple uh, racks and a bunch of servers, and learned about power engineering and cooling engineering, and actually kind of did a cutover. Was that hard? Is it hard to learn that stuff? Well, it was hard because I also in 2006, there was just nowhere near, whether it was on the technical side or the business side of startups, there was just nowhere near the kind of vast uh, resources that are now out there in, in the form of everybody's YouTube talks and slide decks and a thousand more people that have, have actually kind of hit appreciable scale. So yeah, so when, when we were trying to figure out how do you actually build out a data center, we literally wired parts of the patch panels backwards and we had a vendor who came in later and said like, you know, this isn't exactly typically standard. Uh, so I, I would say that we, we definitely, um, there was a steep learning curve back in 2006 on, on trying to DIY some of this. I think, I think we ramped up pretty quickly, but um, at the start, definitely pretty challenging. Was that typical to, to DIY it or did people tend to hire vendors from day one if they just had a software product they wanted to build they knew they had to colo yeah. it and don't didn't most people just hire somebody uh yeah and and we were just i think we were maybe six to 12 months away from when we started to actually build out more of an operation staff so that's that's clearly the right model we were just getting started and being scrappy but yeah uh, it was not not very long before we had layered in people who are data center experts and linux sysadmin experts and network engineers that had both the data center routing and the core internet bgp routing and so we just started to layer that on after and and yeah, built up a tech ops org around all that and of course you learned early on something that would become a canonical issue later on at Box. I believe it's still something that is creative challenge today, which is capacity planning. And that's this is a issue that every yep. every company that, that is a cloud provider or resembles a cloud provider <laughs> has to deal with. Ex- explain what capacity planning is. 
Yeah. So, so capacity planning is, you know, largely what it sounds like. You, you're running a service. It's super dynamic. You have a large customer base that is uh, building on top of you. And so you need some amount of ability to have medium and longer term forecasting to make sure that you literally have the infrastructure in order to support that kind of workload. So what was hard about the early days of capacity planning? Well, a lot of this, some of this is we didn't fully understand the, the kind of footprints of the services. Some of it was that we were quickly adding functionality so that the actual capacity profiles were changing. But probably the most interesting and important lesson that we learned is that uh, this, we ended up being most successful with capacity planning when we, we made it more of a centralized service. I think if you have a team who's out running hard and they're working on building the next thing or maturing something, you can end up with a team that's pretty saturated. And there is some spe- amount of specialized kind of discipline and skill set and tooling really on capacity planning. So probably uh, we had the most material increase in our capabilities there as we centralized that. So now we have a team we call the service engineering team who's focused on how do we think about our consumption across all these services? How do we think about optimizations? And it's one central team that kind of sits and looks out over that. And that's just been much more successful for us. Okay. So they know what they should be tracking. They know how to forecast it. At this point, I'm sure you have enough data to give you a pretty good idea of how to do We've got incredibly predictable, so yeah. Nice. That's great. Was there ever a time when you had a spike that you didn't predict and you were like, oh no, Like, what are we going to do? Fortunately, we've never really wound up in, in that kind of position. There was a hard drive shortage that was triggered by a natural disaster, and I think it knocked out. It turned out that there was kind of a, a supply chain single point of failure for hard drives a couple years ago, and there was literally one factor that mowed the, made the motorized servos at that level of precision, and so the entire industry got backed up. So certainly we were kind of in the wave of everyone else who were making sure that we, were, uh, we had the right kind of capacity from a pure storage perspective. Did that mean potentially having to turn off the service to new customers? What, what would you even do if you if that happened? Yeah, well, so so fortunately, we run with a, a very long buffer. So we, we weren't really sweating bullets. And, and we had a, a whole bunch of different uh, contingency plans and alternate providers and kind of paths that we could look at. But no, there's there never a scenario where we would do that, mm-hmm. turn off the... Okay. Rest. Yep. That's pretty cool. Did you understand what was needed to do redundancy and replication and multi-availability zone or whatever your level of replication is today, mm-hmm. how did you get to that understanding and what was the level of replication of the data in the, in the early days? Because like, the whole idea of Box is basically you put a file on the cloud and it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't disappear. But of course, that puts the ball in your court. That puts the onus on you. You have to replicate it. You've got to yeah. keep it durable in basically any kind of tail risk scenario. Yeah. So we, we kind of think about the problem in two different domains. One is around some of the, the system level metadata, and then the other is around the actual kind of encrypted blob storage, and we, we have different strategies. So we operate with multiple N of the total, where N is the total amount of capacity that's required to operate the site. So we have facilities in the Bay Area, we have facilities that are outside of the disaster zone that are going to be um, sort of far enough away and isolated where we're able to run the entire site from. So security and availability are fundamentally the most important things we do as a company. So we spend a lot of time thinking about both security and availability. So extensive design reviews, uh, extensive kind of thinking through what ifs and scenarios and doing some adverse testing to make sure we're, we're totally buttoned down on that. In the early days, did you find a yeah. distributed systems expert to consult or? <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, yeah, the V.01 of Box in 2006. I think at the very beginning, we, this was, we were trying to really understand, did we have a viable business model here? And so we always, always had backups, but I would say the level of maturity around that has certainly really increased since, since the very beginning. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we started out with a backup system. And as we layered in, as the infrastructure got more sort of sophisticated, as we continued to hire more and more sophisticated people, we kind of invested more there. <laughs> did they let you know? They're like, um, <laughs> you know, this is, uh, you know, it's kind of a skeleton crew system you've got here. You know, you should maybe add in extra layers of redundancy or put, put your, <laughs> put your backups perhaps away from Palo Alto or wherever you were at the time. <laughs> You know, no, no, no major surprises as we brought on more people, but you can certainly imagine that scenario of the really senior person who comes in and takes a look around. Yeah. But no, we didn't wind up there. So when the cloud came out, did you instantly look at it as an opportunity to give, because eventually you started using it for, emer- yeah. you can use it for emergency overflow yep. capacity, but I think the core of your business is such that the economics make sense to really just not use the cloud because you're just going to really eat up uh, a lot of your margin if you use the cloud. How how did the cloud look in the early days and how has your relationship to the cloud evolved? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think when AWS literally launched, I think we looked at it and we thought, yeah, this is obvious. This is really spectacular. The interesting piece of our business is because we serve some of the largest and kind of most complex uh, enterprise customers and organizations around the world, our customers really wanted to be able to get in and understand exactly what's going on and what are the practices. And they wanted to be able to physically visit our data centers. And they were subject to sometimes really high levels of, of regulatory or compliance scrutiny that was unique that we were able to solve that problem. And some of the cloud providers were not able to solve that problem. So I would say there's been a shift. You know, cloud was effect, Public cloud was effectively not usable for us when it came out. And I would say in the last couple of years, as pricing pressure and, and a really robust kind of market around price structure has has emerged, I think that's been good. I think as we see more and more cloud providers build track records and, and step up to the plate on some of the more advanced uh, compliance requirements, that's helped, and just sort of general acceptance. So we're, we're starting to use more and more cloud. And, and for us, this is not a binary bit that we flip of we have to be all data center or we have to uh, be all cloud and it has to be a religious kind of decision for us. We're making pretty informed decisions about you know, if we can be in this region where we're not going to go credibly light up a pair of data centers, uh, and if we can just do that, and if, if our customers feel like this is the right infrastructure for them to run on, that's a really great opportunity for us. So we're absolutely layering in more public cloud, and that's that's really only been possible in the last couple of years. Are you using public cloud for application development, like data engineering tasks, or something like like BigQuery, for example? Like you wouldn't want to write your own BigQuery, but that's quite useful for doing certain data engineering jobs, which I'm sure is the kind of stuff that Box wants to be doing with some of the higher level services that you're developing now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so we're definitely looking at what are the next kind of revs of functionality. A great example of what we're doing in the public cloud is actually we have a product that we announced at our last BoxWorks called Box Skills. And so think of it as a layer that lets you actually access both box-provided machine learning skills and also public cloud-provided kind of skills. Hmm. So that might be with IBM or Amazon or Microsoft or Google, and they might ha- they might be experts and have the world's best uh, vision or video kind of analysis, and we might be expert in something around the, the kind of document set. And so we are actually just plugging those in directly. And so uh, we're, we're literally using public cloud in a way that's going to show up as just a better product. So yeah, so huge opportunity there. So that's like a box shim over these higher level cloud provider services that you're talking about. 
Yeah. And so, yeah, so we'll be able to plug in. And the advantage here is that no one wants to go get locked into a particular API or do all the development work to go understand how to do this or make it portable. And so the goal for us is let's make it completely plug into your existing workflow and the, the kind of core data product box that you're already using. And so, yeah, so uh, just making that drop down sort of simple of like, when this happens, push this thing out to X mm. and get back the transcription. And so we view this as, as a tool to build directly into workflows and to just make a really interesting technology that's going to otherwise be inaccessible and kind of locked behind APIs, just something that we can actually go democratize. See, th- I think this is really cool because much like in the early days, people took the different aspects of cloud providers, the early aspects of cloud providers, you know, like one of your competitors who shall be not, not be named just took S3 and layered usability over S3, and that was a whole business. Today, the cloud providers are coming out with these really exotic type of right. tools, like machine vision, or you mentioned like uh, trans- transcription, for example. Like we, we use a service for making our transcriptions, for making at least the first version of our transcriptions of our podcast episodes. It's I think it's Google Speech to Text. And uh, it's not very usable, right? It's like an API, which is great. But (laughs) if you were somebody at a company, like a a legal company, like a a law firm or something, and you wanted to take a, you know, just some piece of audio and you wanted to drag it to, or you just wanted to right click it and make a transcription of that. The Google API is not built to do that, but that would be a perfect example of what Box would be able to layer on to the Box sort of file system uh, utilities. That's exactly right. Yep, And you can imagine almost every knowledge worker has some sort of use case where it would be great for them to, I've got a thousand images and I need to classify them, or I have all these, I need to look for a certain thing in contracts or et cetera. So yeah, we, we think it's super valuable. We're really excited about it. You have any other use cases that come to mind? Like... I don't know, like doing large scale analysis, like I could imagine, you know, highlighting, like you're looking in a directory and you've got a ton of PDF files. I could imagine highlighting all the text files, all the PDF files, and then saying, do some sort of thing over them if I'm just a knowledge worker. And then that thing keys off a MapReduce or a a Spark job or whatever, but I'm a day, I'm I'm just a knowledge worker. So I don't know anything about MapReduce or Spark. Right, right. Yeah, so we are looking at how do we make this accessible to larger and larger data sets. So there's kind of one dimension, which would be a one-off kind of use case. There would be something else which is set up a repeatable workflow so that you can just have a business process and when a new audio transcription comes in, automatically do this and place it here and send me an email and on and on. And then there, there's sort of, I think, what you're getting at here, which is are there larger scale operations that can be done? And then you know how does that actually get manifested as far as the interface and the result set? And that's also something we're thinking about. Mm. Very cool. Let's shift into a day-to-day sort of discussion, management and hiring and yeah. and operations and so on. You were there from three engineers to 300 engineers or how, however many you have. Do you, have a, do you know how many engineers you have now? We're in that, that kind of zone. Okay. Yeah, probably, probably a little more than that. So what were the key milestones getting from three engineers to 300 engineers? Yeah. I think there are a couple distinct phases as, as I think about this. I, I think phase one in the startup is you have literally all of your engineers are in the same room and you have just complete mind meld. And so you need effectively no formalization of any of your communication methods because everybody's sitting in the same room and has the exact same context. So that's kind of phase one. And it's a, it's a really high kind of um, high throughput. It can be a really a lot of fun and also very chaotic in that phase. But there's some there's just a natural limit of how many engineers can actually kind of operate in that model. 
And so at some point you break into teams. And so maybe you have a front end team and a back end team, and that's kind of your next logical phase. And then as your complexity grows, that back end team no longer looks like a team, but it looks like I have a messaging infrastructure, I have a database infrastructure, I have a caching infrastructure, and, and I have a monitoring, I have platform as a service on and on. And then you kind of get to orgs. And this is where you want to make sure you have some kind of senior leadership who can actually think about the macro portfolio of everything that we're doing and make sure that we have all the right people in the right kind of positions. And so that I would kind of say this is the progression is everyone's in a room to teams to actually orgs that have much more complexity. And then at some point, you, you know, it starts to a bunch of your process that, that kind of generally worked for a while starts to break down if you don't actually build it up. So, um, you know, we think a lot about operational excellence. If you have a, if you have a few hundred engineers, how do you make sure that it's clear? What are the dependencies between X and Y? And if this, you know, if we do this here, how does that kind of show up over here, both architecturally and from a product a general product and project management perspective? So at some point, the, the you kind of want to build in lightweight systems that help you continue to scale once you get to the the multiple distinct kind of orgs phase. At the stage where you've just got everybody in a room, do you yep. have things like KPIs and rules and? regulations and stuff or is it it just too early to do that kind of stuff i mean this is something i i I just have a podcast but we've got two other people that work with me full time and i start to think about like okay should i be like setting goals should i be like when do you put in the formalisms yeah yeah that's that's a great question I think it kind of depends the the grade of system that you're putting in place, but I think the concepts you want to have at basically all scales. So the concept of goals, I think, super critical. And a few years ago, we did a rollout of OKRs at Box, and it was highly successful, and it's very galvanizing. Objectives and key results. That's right. OKRs are a system originally by um, one of the... CEO of um, Intel, Andy Grove, and very, very useful. So yeah, I think you want the concept of goals as early as possible. And I think also your fluidity will be higher. So it's completely fine to say there's 10 of us in a room. This is the goal. This is what we think this week we think is the most important thing we can go execute on. And that can change the following week as long as everyone's crystal clear on that. So I think you want the concept of goals as early as possible. I think you want the concept of KPIs as early as possible. Although I think in really small teams and small environments, you tend to hardly even have the instrumentation to make some of that visible. So you ideally, you need to have some discipline early on so that you kind of instill that very early on in your culture, which is we're going we're gonna to care about the following things. We're going to always pay attention to the user experience. We're going to pay attention to the error rate. We're going to pay attention to the cost per transaction and on and on. So, But I think conceptually, you want to start with KPIs early, although they won't be terribly sophisticated. And then some of the larger kind of project and program management where there's one program that we're trying to achieve that involves 15 different scrum teams. I mean, that, that problem definitely you can punt till down the line and, and that, that shows up later. What about the issues that developed when layers of management started to develop between yourself and then the engineers at the lower parts of the hierarchy like you, you so you, yeah. you you started about saying you know you 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 went from everybody's in the same room to you break up into teams to you break up into entire organizational structures yeah. at each of those breaking points you have a new hierarchical right state step in the tree um, how do things change around there and do you have to add in additional rules or do you have to dissolve rules and Mm. or is it more about the people you hire and about like developing trust and just trusting the people below you will propagate things up properly i mean tell me about what you've learned about where you want to be systematic and where you want to just trust in the fact that 
person A is reporting to person B and it's going to work hunky-dory? Yeah, it's a really great question. A couple things. The one overarching uh, thought would be communication becomes incredibly important. Where it happens organically in the everyone's in the room together kind of phase, it no longer happens for free and organically. So communication becomes massively, massively important. And so what you really want to and do... And you have to instigate it. Exactly, exactly. And so so like literally I, I think about my personal comms cadence and I have a, I have a document somewhere that that literally goes over this is so on this cadence we do a an engineering all hands on this cadence i rotate through and have a casual lunch with teams on this cadence i do a manager's meeting so uh, so definitely you want to get really really intentional about the communications kind of cadence but one kind of two overarching things would be context is incredibly valuable so if you can share with people not specific prescriptions but if you can share them the context on the business problem or the technical or product problem that we're trying to solve you enable much more distributed decision making mm-hmm. You really ossify as an organization when you do it, when every decision has to get punted up multiple levels. And so we actually expressly operate on the on the this philosophy, which is that we try and always push decision making down to the lowest level that makes sense. And so we don't want to centralize a, a bunch of the decisions where we can actually instead offer context and ha- hire really brilliant people, do periodic check-ins, and make sure we're on the right track, and ultimately uh, generally kind of get out of their way. So that that's an overarching uh, kind of approach: is share a tremendous amount of context about what problem you're trying to solve and why it's an important problem, and then philosophically push decisions down to the lowest level possible. So that's on the kind of comms piece. You still do need an operating system, and that operating system, like I was saying on the cadence. You have to think about what are the, the points of engagement where I make sure things are on track or we have an opportunity to change the strategy or to course correct or et cetera. Uh, and so that helps to just get very systematic on that piece of it. What's an example of setting context and how you would push that context down to the edges of the organization? Let's say we're building a new, a new feature where we think there's a huge opportunity. Rather than here's the spec and let's go build this, I would sit down and our product team would do this and our engine managers would do this and the leadership team. Uh, would, would sit down with the team and set up the, here's the problem. We have X customers that are running into Y thing, or we think we have an opportunity here. And we're hearing this in the field. And I would give real data points. So as concrete as you can be is, is massively helpful on context in general. So here are literally, here's five customer quotes that said that if we did X, they would find it incredibly valuable. And we think there's a huge opportunity here. And the value prop, the magic moment for this product will be X. There are probably five different valid routes that you guys as a team need to go think through and you know bring it back to us and we'll kick it around and we'll have some conversation and be a brainstorm partner. But this is fundamentally the problem we're trying to solve on the opportunity. And if we get to this magic moment, we think we win. That tends to go really well, and and that empowers people instead of, you know, you're prescribing exactly what to do, and there's just very little autonomy and interest in just executing something that's already a spec, which is probably the wrong spec because you didn't have enough context because you didn't fully understand the problem. And I suppose that's going to, the, the success of that setting context and pushing it to the edges of the organization, the success of that is going to be directly correlated to how well you hire, because if it's, yes. if you hire well, then as the mission propagates through the organization, it's going to get more refined and improved. If you hire poorly, it's going to get worse and worse and muddier, and the spec is going to never like <laughs> calcify into something that is going to be good. It's going to just, it's going to get terrible. And you, and then yeah, that's, yeah. I think that's probably why like big bureaucratic organizations that maybe don't have a grade talent tend to get those super hierarchical systems where the smartest people are at the top and then they develop a super rigorous spec and then just tell people lower down what to do. Yes. Yeah, I think that that sometimes people try and patch for people with process and no amount of process will ever fully patch 
on the people side. So uh, yeah, you absolutely want to make sure that you're, you have the right kind of team on the field. Yep. Any suggestions for decentralized communication? Decentralized communication. So I'm not sure this will fully answer your question, but the approach I've, I've kind of landed on is you have to go multi-channel. So if you have, this is the strategy and here's what we're doing, here's why we're important. You have a lot of people who are, are on the ground running and working on some very interesting, very hard problem and they're, they're engrossed in that problem typically. So if you just send an email and it says, this is the strategy for this year, you're going to, A, that will not have been enough repetition uh, and B, you will just miss a bunch of people on that channel. So we try and have the same message and really bring it to life on an email and an all hands, mm. a company all hands and an end all hands, and then uh, some casual hallway conversations and having lunch with the team. So if you don't go multi-channel, you're missing a huge opportunity on the communication front. Mm. Yeah, that's great. I was at uh, Amazon very briefly, and one thing I noticed about working there was how frequently the core like that whatever the 12 core commandments of Amazon were just mm. like reiterated and repeated and were worked yes. into daily conversation and it's pretty helpful. I mean, you don't even need to know about something that is going on in the shipping and taxation team, but it, because you know the 12 core principles, you can have some right. semblance of an idea of how that team operates. Like yeah, they're, yes, they're being frugal. So building a shared culture, shared values yeah. is a very very important technique. Yes. Mm. Everyone can rally around that. So given that we've brought an amount of gravity to the idea of hiring, how have you evolved the hiring process at Box? What does it look like today? Yeah. So we, we have gotten really focused on how do we become better predictors? How do we be more efficient in the process so that we're spending time in the right kind of places? How do we make sure that the candidate experience is fantastic and so, you know, we've gotten, we never did the um, how many, you know, manholes in Seattle kind of question, but I think we've just done a lot of refinement to make sure that we're asking questions that we feel like correlate with actual day-to-day performance. And we, we share a lot of business context in the process so people can kind of hopefully be pretty pumped up by this is the mission, here's, here's the kind of problems that we're trying to solve. So we've done a lot of tuning of the overall candidate experience and, and the questions we ask. We've gotten very rigorous and, and formalized on the, you know, here are, are people that are approved to ask X, Y, that are basically trained on a given question. It doesn't help if you have a, a core of 10 or 20 people that are all asking the same question, but grading it in a spectacularly different way. So we've, we've tried to get much more standardized. And in general, we're, we're operating this thing much more like a, a kind of overarching system. And, and in general, I've been really happy with, I um, feel like we're, we're bringing on really, really uh, just spectacular kind of engineers. What do you think about the trade-off between having a a specific team do an entire hiring loop like you have the mm-hmm. billing team for example and they're hiring right. a new engineer for billing and they just have and they're desperate for an engineer they really need it so if i've heard about the problem where if you give billing team full autonomy over the hire if they're desperate yep. they may compromise on the hiring and so mm-hmm. you at certain organizations you have centralized hiring facilities that basically will double check or they'll, you know, you'll have one person from another team in every hiring loop so that you don't have that kind of risk. Do you have that any checks or imbalances like that? Yeah. Yeah. So we always make sure that there are multiple people from other teams that that are interviewing, participating in the interview loop, Uh, not just to make sure that we were maintaining the right bar, but also because there might legitimately be a better fit with another team. So that, that's a practice. We watch this very carefully. So we look at all of the interview feedback and, and kind of uh, roundup notes, and we make sure that we don't feel like there's a position where 
uh, we're making the wrong call. And that's something that, that we look at at a couple different levels as part of the, the overall kind of check and systems. I think the root of this question, though, is I think as a company, you have to have a hiring philosophy. And that hiring philosophy can be we're going to massively empower managers. And we're going to make sure that if we make some mistakes along the way that we, we have a path to identifying that. Or you can say, we're going to try and basically, we'll, we'll do eight rounds. We'll talk to 60 people. We're going to be pretty certain that, that uh, we think this is the right person. And, uh, and you can kind of err on that side. And you just fundamentally, as a company, you decide what are you optimizing for? Velocity, autonomy, total throughput of the system, uh, minimizing the, the kind of risk of thrash uh, in your overall hiring system. So you have to pick that at the top, sort of top level. And from there, then a bunch of the decisions become really, really self-evident. So maybe you say, we have no risk tolerance for maybe bringing someone that's not exactly the right fit. So we're gonna, there's going to be a committee, and it's going to be incredibly rigorous. And then another company might say, you know, we're optimizing for throughput, and maybe occasionally we'll get something wrong. And then that's where you probably then go add in more autonomy. Hmm. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about engineering and I guess, no, actually operations. I want to talk about operations with you. So Box, I think of as a somewhat operationally intensive company because you're constantly doing, you you have to do capacity planning, you're rolling out new features, you're updating operating systems. I mean, you manage your own hardware, although I think it's still co-located right so so i guess the that's sort of outsourced to the people at the colo like you can trust that they're taking care of the hardware or do you actually have hardware engineers actually at this point we we have hardware engineers uh we're we're responsible for the equipment so all the way down to the electrical so it is it is operationally intensive yeah okay so you do you buy data centers or do you just rent space in other data centers we're we're renting space typically all right are there pros and cons of that? Like, are there ever a time where you're like, oh, I wish we really owned this real estate and could do more creative things? Or is that, do you just factor that out as a core competency? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think it's just a question of scale. And, and so there's a progression, and let's, let's exclude public cloud from this, but I think there's a progression here where you would start out in, um, in some managed hosting, like I described in 2006 box. And then you might kind of graduate to co-location in a retail facility, and then you get to a wholesale facility. And so the difference between retail and wholesale is wholesale is basically just the space and you provide your own electricians and your own contractors that do all the installation. And so that's going to be in the multiple megawatts kind of zone. And then past that point, you look at, uh, do we actually want to build out our own physical data centers? And certainly there are, there are some scale advantages that can come with that. There's also a lot of complexity in kind of all the real estate, 30-year depreciation timelines, uh, all the construction kind of risk. Uh, so it's just it's just a matter matter of sort of gradation of what's the the appropriate kind of scale fit for a given time. So when you're owning the so many different vertical layers in that stack, yeah, does it become challenging to make sure that when something goes wrong, the right team is aware that that error has occurred and that information propagates the team and the team can figure it out in a timely fashion? Yeah, it's a great question. So because there are a bunch of different things that, that are all the kind of integrated systems, we approach each as its own infrastructure layer. And as much as possible, we try and have those layers presented as pure APIs with their own, on a common monitoring platform, but with graphs and dashboards that, that really are specific to that layer. So at some point, it becomes not dissimilar from a, a uh, just public cloud kind of compute mm-hmm. machine because you everyone above that, that kind of layer can actually depend on this is the API in the interface. And we have a team that wakes up every every day thinking about making sure that the, uh, their layer is kind of healthy and performing. So it's not terribly complex. Okay. You just have built out the right, uh, the right monitoring, the right organizational structures. Mm-hmm. And you have, your, your design goal has to be, we're going to build these with some sort of modularity and API between the, the technical and organizational layers. And if you don't do that, then you would wind up so commingled that it would be impossible to kind of manage. 
two years ago, there was this Google SRE book that came out and it talked about the new way of, uh, well, not a new way, but it was basically Google's way of managing operations. This was a pretty popular book. It changed a lot of people's minds about things. Did it change your mentality at all? Or had that mentality, the SRE way of doing things, had that already propagated to Box? Yeah, I I think that had largely already propagated to us. So I think the failure mode that some organizations get into is that tech ops can be consumed purely by firefighting. And if you think of tech ops as a reliability engineering organization in the very literal sense of of SRE, we were already aligned on on that kind of approach. And I, I completely think it's the right approach. There's just no need to spend time on toil, which I think was a, a concept that they they blew out to a broader stage, and it's worth investment to reduce your kind of total amount of toil. And I do think that there are distinct skill sets. They can they can happen to be co-located in, in a single engineer, but in general, there is a distinct skill set around thinking through reliability engineering, and it's incredibly valuable. And to the to the extent that you can embed reliability engineers and teams, I think you get great outcomes. And it's, it's something we try and do. So you would articulate the difference between the SRE approach and perhaps pre-SRE operations is that the SREs are more proactive, they're dependent, their goal is to be have reliable infrastructure as opposed to fixing the infrastructure when it breaks? That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think that they get included in the design process in a first-class way instead of a, a very traditional dev and ops, they're thrown over the wall kind of model where the day before release, the ops team is screaming because they realize that the software package is going to do X, Y, and Z and it's going to be a disaster. So... Yes, exactly. It's it's the shift from being generally proactive versus generally reactive and, make, and feeling like sort of this is one team that's aligning on these common goals of let's build some really something that's going to blow our customers' minds and do it in a really reliable way. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to talking to Sam about the Kubernetes migration because it sounds like that was probably helpful in, in assisting the deployment process. Yep. So I know you're running out of time. Why don't you tell me your product development process as a way to close off when you have a new feature that Box wants to develop. How does it get designed? How does it get engineered? And how do resources get allocated to it? Yep. So first of all, from a uh, kind of innovation source perspective, in general, it's our our product management team's responsibility to drive features and to make sure that we, we build them in a way that meets what we're trying to do from a customer and market perspective. But we very much drive innovation through the whole business. So some of our best ideas come out of our customer success organization, or from engineers themselves, or from someone on the sales team. So just in general, we have a pretty sort of wide aperture of how we think about kicking off an idea. And we just solve for, is this an interesting idea? If so, let's get into the product and see if we can make it real. On the product side, I think there are categories of features that your customers know that they need. And there's categories of customers that your, your categories of features that your customers don't know that they need. And in general, we try and think about those separately. So we're going to get a lot of, you know, in general, we'll be maybe customer driven and we'll get uh, a lot of feedback on if there's something that that is a customer probably knows that they want. And so we have a product manager who can go out in the field and have a bunch of conversations and watch how people are using the product and kind of get to a decent idea from there. And there'll be a category of things where customers never asked us before. And maybe they're not in the best position to provide a huge amount of input up front until we flesh it out. And so that's a case where we're not going to do as much kind of intense market analysis and research because fundamentally we're working on something that we think is a bit of a longer range bet or a little further out. And so uh, in that area, we'd be that, that kind of approach would be focused more on what is this and what's the, the aha moment and the, the customer value prop and how do we build this? 
um, and less on the let's make sure we have rigor around what we think the opportunity size is and on and on. So we have a product manager that, that gets to a crystal clear idea of what we think we want to do. And we try and do some small iterations, some cheap prototyping or other iterations up front to see if we can get feedback on something before we go commit to build something. So we try and be iterative. We, as I mentioned on context earlier, we try and saturate the engineering team in the context of not just let's go build this, but here's the problem we're solving. And this is a really interesting and impactful problem. And any ways that you have to kind of improve this, we, we want to hear and have a conversation on. Uh, we have a tight communication. So one of our key units, organizational units at Box, is the binding between a product manager and the engineering manager and also typically the program manager. So they spend a lot of time working on this. Get to it. We get to a spec. We do some prototyping. And then we also make sure that we have, a, if this was sort of architecturally intensive, we make sure that there is a, a design process for, let's think about how this is going to work, how is this going to scale, how we're going to make sure it's uh, resilient and reliable and secure. And then we kind of walk that through a process and get to a point where we're actually off and running and building it. So it's, it's quite a long process to, to distill, but that's, that's the essence of it. Well, that was a helpful distillation nonetheless. Jeff Kweiser, I want to thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really fun talking to you, and I appreciate you making the time. Great talking to you, too. Thanks. Wow.